This is Way Family Church, and you're listening to our sermon podcast. We invite you to join us in person every Sunday morning at 1030. We meet at Lawford Middle School in Tucson, Arizona. For more information about who we are, upcoming events, or if you'd like to connect, visit us online at www.wayfamily.church. Now get your Bibles ready, and let's begin. Amen. Praise God. Welcome. Once again, welcome. I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to the book or the gospel according to Matthew. Um, Since there are several new people here, let me just explain that we um, exposit the Word of God. That means that we look through the Bible book by book, verse by verse. It doesn't mean that we go necessarily in order, but once we start a book, we dissect it. We really want to know what the Word of the Lord is saying to us. Uh, And so right now we're currently in the book of Matthew and we're looking into chapter 3. And so let's uh, go to Matthew chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 7 through 12 today. Uh, And we're going to continue with Matthew's account of John the baptizer. Last week we were introduced to John, the greatest man that had ever arisen up until Jesus has come. In fact, Jesus calls him the greatest of men that has arisen, which was interesting. And we had looked into that which makes a man or a woman great. What made John great? And so we were able to see a lot of who John was and uh, also tried to, to understand, okay, what is it that I should be to be considered great among the kingdom of God? And we learned that the kingdom of heaven is an upside down kingdom, which means that to be great you have to be humble. It means that if you want to gain, you have to give. It means that if you want to be a leader, you must be a servant. And so it's re- really backwards, you know, as, as far as we see the, the world at work. The world says one thing, the word of the Lord says another. And so what are we going to do? We're going to live according to the word of the Lord. And so we continue and we learned that John came to prepare the way of the Lord like a herald would, like someone who would go before the... the, the the entourage of of a king to prepare the path that the king was going to go on. So that meant that if there were potholes, you would fill them. That meant that if there was debris, you would clear them. That meant that if the roads were too narrow, you would widen them. Do you see? And so this was the role of John the baptizer. And as far as we can see, he was an incredible herald to the coming king, King Jesus. You know, his life in itself was was a confirmation of Jesus as king. He was foretold by Isaiah, by prophets of old, that John would come, that a herald would come to proclaim the way of the Lord. And sure enough, just in his life alone, there's this validation of Jesus as king, the Messiah. And so we keep looking at this and we realize that John was not a typical herald, though, as you would imagine someone to prepare the way for a king. For usually those entourages were glamorous. There were uh, expensive. They were designed to show the value that that king held. They were designed to promote that king and his riches and his power and his might because depending on what you had, depending on how you presented yourself, you were either, you were evaluated whether or not you were a powerful king or not a powerful king. And here's John, the baptizer, the herald of the most high king. And this guy looks nothing like you would imagine a herald to look like. In fact, He looks almost homeless, probably. (laughs) You know, he's dressed in camel skin. He's 
uh, has this picture of humility like no other. And so therefore, his words, his message was well received because people knew that this man meant what he was saying. People knew that this meant meant and believed exactly what he was proclaiming. And it is important, obviously, if you're going to preach something that you believe it, right? And so he was a good example of this. And he was a person who was very gentle with some, but I would say vicious with others or more confrontational with others. He was meek in his way of living. He was humble in his approach and the way that he talked to others. But as we said last week, don't mistake meekness for weakness because John was not that guy. John knew exactly what he was talking about. He knew that the word of the Lord was on his side or he was on the side of the word of the Lord, I should say. And so uh, as, as one of Sandy's classmates once said, she was, when she was doing school, one of her classmates wrote, um, and, and I quote, John was strapped with the word of God. You know, that means that he knew exactly what he had, and so he delivered it for what it was. He was confident at what he was saying because it was the Lord's word, not our word. You know, I'll tell you something. I'll confess something to you. When I come up here, I literally have nothing to tell you. That comes from me. I have nothing to tell you. I don't think that my, my life is personally as valuable as to say you should learn from me, you know, or you should learn of my wisdom. What, what, what brings me up here is the word of the Lord and the message that he has, not just for you, but for me as well. And so John had this. He knew this. This was important. He knew that the word of the Lord is worth proclaiming, and he, would, he approached it with full confidence. The message was true. The message was good, and he did it in such a exemplar way to proclaim the, the Lord, the coming of the king. His preaching, too, was on point. John was not one of those guys who colored the, the, the word so that it would look attractive or anything like that. Either was or it wasn't. He was straight to the point. He said it the way it was. It was clear, and it was practical. Now, so the gospel, according to Luke, however, if we look at that one, you will see that it gives a little bit more account or more details about who John the Baptist was, not just his background, but also a little bit about what he taught. And so I encourage you to read Luke chapter 3, verse 7 through 14 simultaneously. So go back and bookmark that so that you could see a little bit deeper into this account according to Luke. In addition to today's reading, I think that it would really help you just get a broader, bigger picture of John the Baptist. Baptist and the message he's proclaiming here. And so with that, let's go to Matthew chapter 3, verse 7 through 12. Let's read that together. You can follow along in your Bibles or on the screens here. Matthew chapter 3, verse 7 through 12. And it says this, but when he saw many of the Pharisees, this is John, he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism. He said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word today, Lord Jesus. 
Lord, I ask that you would help us understand the message that you have for us, Lord. Help us see what is written, Lord, that we would just not be hearers, Father, but doers of your word. And so, Lord, we love you. We praise you. We come together, Lord Jesus, because you have something in store for us, and we don't want to miss it. And so we ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, so today we're going to look into true repentance. That's our sermon title today. True repentance, you know, it's, it's actually uh, important for us to look into these things because repentance can become a very ambiguous word. If we don't understand what it means, we may confuse it for something that it's not. And so true repentance, John had begun his ministry just outside of Jerusalem in the wilderness. And so he was on the outskirts and people were coming to him and he was ministering to them and he was talking to them about the kingdom of God and of heaven and how they should come and repent. And he said, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That means repent, turn, convert, be different, change, realize what your sin is and turn around from it. Because time is of the essence, the kingdom of heaven is near, it's at hand. That means judgment will come for those who are found guilty. But forgiveness is for those who come to true repentance is the message that John is proclaiming. Again, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. That's pretty clear, short and sweet, but very deep uh, in nature as well. So his message was not only clear, a clear call to repentance, but it was also for baptism as well. And this is, I think, what really makes John the Baptist very distinct. This is why he gets his name Baptist, right? Or the baptizer, John the baptizer. He, preach, he preached a message of repentance, which is an interchange of heart and mind. And he combined that with the message of baptism, which is an outward act that symbolized that change. And so that change starts inside, in the heart, and that's what he promoted, that's what he pushed, that's what he uh, 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 labored in helping people understand. you got to recognize that there's a necessary change and then show it, live it. Don't just keep it in here, but do something that is observable because it edifies the church, because it blesses others. And so his call was to baptism. And then here's the thing, when you have those two, that equals something nice, something good, something helpful. It's a manner of living, living that actually demonstrates the change. You know, people need, need, need leaders. People need examples to be able to follow. And so when there's true repentance and when there's baptism, which is the outward act that symbolizes that change, then you have a really good demonstration of what genuine change looks like. And so we could also say it like this. True repentance is evident in that it bears good fruit. True repentance shows. You can say that you've repented, but if it doesn't show, that's all we can go by, right? Now, here's the thing, though. The Lord knows the heart. The Lord knows exactly what's going on in your heart, and he has not given us the job or the task to de determine whether or not you're truly saved or truly repentant. But, but we can only go what we can observe. And, and usually you can observe a change. That doesn't mean that it's necessarily a radical, instantaneous change. For some of us, it takes a little bit longer to be sanctified, if you would, right? But, but, but for others, it could be instantaneous and radical. The point is that there is a progressive change. There's something that's evident that there is an inward change, an inward conversion, if, I, if you would. And so, again, John goes straight to the point. He was that kind of preacher. His preaching, again, was simple, it was straight, 
and it really directed the heart. It wasn't just information, but essential information. And so John proclaimed the coming of the king with faithfulness. He proclaimed it with boldness. He proclaimed it with courage. He proclaimed it with power and with devotion to no other than the king himself. And this is important. Let me say that again. John proclaimed the coming of the king. He proclaimed the Messiah. He proclaimed it with boldness, with courage, with power, with confidence, with devotion. And he proclaimed it and it alone, meaning King Jesus, no, and no, nothing else would come between that message and, 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 and the ministry that he has here. Now, this is important for us to realize. John's devotion is important for us to realize because we will see other characters in here that did not minister or live according to this standard. And so the fact that John is devoted to the word of the Lord is tremendous. It's huge. And unfortunately, in this day, it was rare. Okay? And so at the same time as he's proclaiming with such confidence, he was comforting to those who, was, who were genuinely repentant. He was very nourishing. He was able to, to bring them in and give them that sense of family, community, that sense of courage, assurance, and everything that we need when we need, when obviously we're found in help and need. But, but then to some, he would be considered kind of creepy in his mes message, and maybe creepy is not the right word. He was confrontational. You know when someone says something to you very confronting, very weird, very like, how do you even know that about me? It, it feels kind of creepy. I'll give you a, 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 an example. My daughter, when she was really young, just old enough to speak, she would say, and I'm just going to use the word creepy because it was creepy. She would say the creepiest things to us sometimes. We would go out and go on a date. Mom and I, she'd stay home, and she would just, she's little, barely speaking. She's like, bye, you guys are going to crash. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's like, like, why would you say that, you know? Why would you, like, what do you know that I don't know here? And so my wife and I would be like, Lord Jesus, please give us traveling mercies. You know, we don't know if this, this girl is a little prophet or what's going on, but this is creepy. You know, so sometimes when you're confronted with things like that, like that would be bad news. Fortunately, I don't think my daughter has the gift of prophecy. Praise God for that and when it comes to that message, you know. But when someone does and they approach you, with boldness and confidence, and they tell you something that you don't necessarily want to hear, that's kind of weird, you know? It, it's kind of troubling. John was like that to some, and he was comforting to others. Confrontational to some, comforting. And what's another word I'm looking for? And, and, and comforting is good, to others. And so now, after the introduction of John and his ministry, Matthew goes on, and he focuses on four factors that we're going to look in here today to help us understand what true repentance is, what it looks like. And so the message is clear, repent. Okay, we got that. But that, that message is still deep. The question is, what does that actually look like? Can I be wrong with my understanding of what repentance looks like? And so what does it look like? And so as we consider these verses from verses 7 through 12, I want to consider just four factors here. First thing we're going to consider is the crowd. Who was there? Who was John talking to? Let's look at them a little bit deeper. The second thing we're going to look into is the, the confrontation that he has with some. He has a confrontation with some, as you read. And then the next thing we're going to see is the class. You see my sequence of C's? 
I picked class because I didn't want to say lesson or master class. So it's just a class. It's just a classroom moment where he teaches them something. And then finally, four, there's the consequence and the comfort that he delivers to those who are facing consequences and those who are needing to be comforted. Uh, And so that's what we're going to look at. So the first thing let's look at is the crowd. Who's there? Now, here's a new class of people that enter the scene that are introduced to us for the first time. You may be familiar with these words because you've read your Bible once or twice before, I hope, but this is actually the very first time that we're introduced to the Pharisees and to the Sadducees. In fact, verse 7 says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, and so here's a picture of John ministering to the crowds, talking about the kingdom of heaven, and then all of a sudden we see these two groups of people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, these are key characters, and it would do us very good to understand who these people are, who these groups are, because we will read a lot of them as we continue to progress through the Gospel of Matthew. You read a lot of them throughout all of the Gospels, and even the book of Acts and some of the, um, uh, the New Testament books. And so it's important for us to understand who these guys are. Sometimes we have just a general picture of who these guys are and we really understand their heart, their motives, their desires. Like, who are these people really? I'm hoping that we can bring light into these, who these guys are. And so by the time of the New Testament, there was actually four very distinct groups or sects of Judaism. So these are all Jewish people. But there were four major distinct groups that kind of were in existence at the time. There's more, but there's four major ones. The the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots. These were the four major groups. So I'll start a little bit with the Essenes because I'm not going to focus on them today. For the most part, the Essenes... These were unmarried people, very much so uh, ostracized from communities. They liked to just be set apart. They took that literally, a lot like the Amish community today, except for they marry, you know. Um, but to be set apart, to be completely isolated or, or separated from society, this, this is what, these, these were the Essenes. And so they're actually the ones who were responsible for the Dead Sea Scrolls. So they were on the desert, and they devoted their lives to just copying the scriptures. And so we owe it big time to the Essenes for doing this because the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in one of their communities in Qumran. And, and so because of that, we have an original, very old manuscript of the Bible. And so this is the ministry that the Essenes uh, devoted themselves to. And because they were generally unmarried, what they would devote themselves to is also bringing in foster children for adoption. And so they were kind of like the adoption system of the day. If there was someone who just needed a family, the Essenes would take them. God bless them, right? And they would train them up in the word of the Lord, and they were literally set apart for the work of God. And this is how they did it. These were the Essenes. Now, we don't read of them a lot as we go in through the Gospel of Matthew because they're out there. They're not really impacting society. So even though they're doing a wonderful work, they're not concerned about impacting society directly. Do you see that? The next group that I want to tell you about are the Zealots. Now, these were a militant, anti-Roman, Jewish, political, and religious group. Their focus was the removal or the liberation of the Jews from its oppressors, which was Rome at the time. Their, their whole operation was an underground operation. They were a nuisance to the Romans because they would, as you kind of see in the image here, constantly plan attacks to be able to cleanse the city of their oppressors. Now, they did this out of a devotion to God. 
This was a very religious thing. And so they felt that they were righteous and they were uh, in right standing in, in, in as far as doing this. And so this is just a little bit of the zealots. But Matthew specifically mentions the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so I want to focus a little bit more on who those guys are. Unlike the Essenes, who really didn't draw attention to themselves, they were outsiders, if you would. The Pharisees were pretty mainstream. The Pharisees were an in-your-face kind of group. They resided primarily in Jerusalem, and they were found in the major cities around Israel. So if there were people, there were Pharisees. Okay, And these were devout followers of the law. You know, They, they, they really were genuine, and a lot of them were sincerely pursuing right living with God, but they only did it as far as they knew how to do it. And the way it was taught and it was passed down was very loose in, in a sense. In fact, um, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, upon the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Essenes had actually said something about the Pharisees that I found very interesting. They said that the Pharisees, or they accused the Pharisees, of being seekers of smooth things. Interesting, in that they passed easy interpretations of the scriptures to people for the purpose of being liked. So if there was a hard word, they would smooth it out so that you would like that person and appreciate that person. And so their goal was to be appreciated, to be liked. You know, they loved respectful greetings. If you saw a Pharisee, one of those guys, they loved to be called a rabbi. They loved to be addressed as a person of high honor. They loved the, the places of honor, like at the temple and public markets, etc. When you, you called them something, don't just call them by name because Pharisees were commoners, so it's very likely that you probably grew up with one of them, but call them rabbi. You know, I don't mind if you don't call me pastor. I'm okay with that. But I have come across some people who, they correct you. You call them by their name, it's, it's actually pastor so-and-so. Okay, pastor so-and-so. These guys were very like that. They wanted to make sure that everybody knew that they were a rabbi, a person of high honor. Remember, that day, the whole uh, system was all based on status. And so this was one way that a commoner can be a person of high status. So to be a Pharisee was something that was sought after. Does that make sense? And so, again, they loved the places of high honor. They, they loved the respectful greetings. And the Pharisees believed, here's the thing that is important. They believed and they taught in the resurrection. They acknowledged the entirety of the, whole of the Old Testament. They, they, they actually uh, recognized the historical books and the prophets, as opposed to the Sadducees, they did not. And so now the Sadducees, here's a different group. This is not a group of commoners. This is a group of aristocrats. You had to be a person of high status already to be able to be a Sadducee. Usually the high priest of the temple was a Sadducee, like Annas and Caiaphas, who we read about later in the book of Matthew. These people were nothing like the Pharisees. They were polar opposites. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection the Sadducees did not. The Pharisees believed in angels, demons, and, and supernatural. The Pharisees did not. The Pharisees only believed in what the law of Moses shared. And so they were very different. There was a lot of uh, disagreement between the two. And it's important to know this. I know you're probably wondering, okay, this, this is probably not the most interesting thing that you're hearing. But if you don't understand who these people are, you're going to miss a lot of the gospel of Matthew. And so you see this entirely different type of person. Now, the Pharisees were the conservatives. The Sadducees were the ultra-liberals. 
the Pharisees would conserve the word of this, the, the, the Lord as, as far as, hey, this is what the law says. Let's figure out an interpretation. There were three major schools that you can kind of interpret it through, but the Sadducees didn't care so much. Hey, whatever just makes the peace. We'll go with it. You like that? All right, let's go with that. That's the kind of attitude that they had. They were very different. They were very opposite. But here's the thing, though. Even though they were totally opposed to one another, even though they were totally on two different spectrums or sides of the spectrum, nothing in common, the one thing that united them was Jesus. Like, how is that so? They both hated him. They both hated everything about Jesus. And so the Pharisees were ritualistic. The Sadducees were rationalistic. The Pharisees were strict separatists. The Sadducees were compromising collaborators. The Pharisees were commoners. The Sadducees were aristocrats. And they were so different, but so united in that we hate Jesus and anyone who serves him. And so this is interesting, and this is important for us to know. The Sadducees and the Pharisees show up to the scene, and they would only unite for their hatred of the believers who follow the Jesus, because this is what this means, a whole new sect of Judaism. In fact, the original name for that new sect, which today we call Christianity, was the way. They would say, are you of the sect of the way? In other words, are you a follower of this teacher named Jesus? This is what they didn't want. They liked the status quo. They liked life as it was. They liked being in the places of high honor. And now there's new, this, this new guy. There's a problem here. So now again, it's helpful to understand who these guys are. With that in mind, let's proceed. But here's the thing, though. Before we do that, you're probably wondering and you're thinking, because I'm so guilty of this. Sometimes we look at these people and we say, well, that's interesting about that. They're so, they're so crummy. You know, I, I, I'm so grateful that I'm not like a Pharisee, or I'm so grateful that I'm not like a Sadducee. But here's the fact of the matter is that too often we don't realize that we're very much so like these characters that are presented here in the scriptures. You know, some of us are more ritualistic. Some of us are more traditional in the way that we live. And some of us are more rationalistic. Some of us are more, you know, uh, liberal in the way that we live. And so we have to really consider, like, how do I actually process and think? It's probably very similar to either a Pharisee or a Sadducee. It's probably so. Not saying that you guys are all Pharisees and Sadducees, but some of you guys may be so much like a Pharisee and a Sadducee. Let's just be real, okay? And so it's important for us to note, it's important for us to, to really look at this and self-evaluate in a way that's constructive, because we don't want to miss it, especially with this topic of true repentance. Again, some of us are conservative, some of us are liberal. The question is, where do I fall? What do I need to know here? And so let's go here, and the message is clear. We need to repent. That's the, regardless of where you are, we need to come to the place where we realize that we are actually falling short of the glory of God, and we need to repent. And so the Word of God, again, confronts those whose faith, hope, and trust is in themselves, but it also comforts those who are surrendered to His perfect will. Now, here's the whole point of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Regardless of how they thought, regardless of how they processed, they totally relied on their own abilities, and that's the bottom line. They totally relied on their rituals, or they totally relied on their practices or their personal preferences. They did not rely on the actual Word of God. And so let's look at that first, or, or that second part, the confrontation. And so verse 7 says that they show up to John's baptism, which means that they're there to get baptized, which is interesting in itself. And then John notices them, and verse 7 says that John says to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, 
You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? In other words, he said something like, you sons of slithery snakes. Whoa, dude. First of all, don't talk like that at church, okay? Second of all, do you know who you're talking to? These are the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the people of high honor. How dare you speak to them in that regard? Remember, John was strapped with the word of God. He didn't care about society, what society thought, what the world said. He only cared what the word of the Lord said. He only cared for truth. And so people must have been like, whoa, who is this guy? And why is he confronting them in this way? This is no way to speak to the high esteemed, you know? But John is keenly aware of their motives and in their heart, which to me is so incredible. It's amazing. He knew that they were there at a ritualistic effort and not the heart. Their heart was not there. They were being very hypocritical, and it was so obvious, and it was clear, and it showed. It showed because there was no evidence of repentance. Do you see that? And so he calls them out, and he calls them a brood of vipers. These guys were coming to be baptized just as the sake of fire insurance, really. Two reasons. One, there's this king that's being proclaimed. I don't want to miss it. I don't want to be found in the wrong, so I'm going to go do the thing because that's the ritual thing to do. And two, I want everyone to see how amazing I am because I am a person of high esteem and high honor. And John calls them out. He says, you brood of vipers. You're not repentant. You're here for the wrong reasons. You're not actually seeing the, 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 the necessity that's at hand here. Again, brood of vipers, slithery snakes. Wow, that's actually, it means sons of snakes, offspring of snakes. And you know, at first, when I first read this so many times before, I didn't quite understand why John would say that. But it's, it's not a coincidence, it's not easy, and it's not just a figure of speech, if you would, because Jesus also calls the Pharisees brood of vipers in chapters, uh, uh, in upcoming chapters, which is interesting. It's like, okay, what is actually going on here? Why are they using this kind of language? Why are they addressing them as sons of snakes? You know, the crowd there would have understood this very clearly, and there's a very interesting reason why they use this. Vipers were very common in the wilderness of Judea. They were snakes that, um, you've heard it, a baby snake is more dangerous than adult snakes, right? Because they can't control their, their, the, the, the amount of venom that they deliver upon a bite. So that makes them da more dangerous. But the other thing about these particular vipers is the, the little ones, the baby ones, their mode of defense was actually camouflage. And so what they would do is they would go and they would find dead branches and sticks and they would be completely still. In fact, they were renowned for being able to be entirely still. They would camouflage to the point where it was very common for people to pick up a batch of sticks, of branches for firewood or whatever it may be, and be bit by snakes by the brood of vipers. It was very common for people to not have seen them, and then before you know it, you're dying because this little snake killed you, you know? And so he's, he's referring to them as that. In other words, he's saying, you're hypocritical. You're, you're appearing to be one thing, but you're actually something else. You're appearing to be a branch, a stick in the pile of wood, but you're a snake, and you're dangerous, and you're, and you're, and you're hurting people who are not intended, intending to be hurt. They're not intending to fall into the trap, but that's what's happening. And then in addition to that, he goes on, he says, who warned you from the fire to come? And we'll get to that here in a second. He says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Meaning, here's a picture again, back to that image of, of the, the, the brood of vipers. Because they were often picked up accidentally, 
They were thrown into fire pits or brush fires, and it was also very common to see brood of vipers slithering out. And so he's comparing them to this situation. It's like, here's, here you are being deceitful. You hide, and then when the fire comes, you run away like a coward, essentially, is what he's saying. And you know, slithery snakes. Now it makes sense. To me, when I realized it, I thought, wow, this is interesting. You know, Jesus also confronts the Pharisees a lot, and he says this about them, which is very important for us to see. In John 8, 44, Jesus, while confronting a Pharisee, says, you are of your father the devil. Can you imagine being spoken to like that? And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. Essentially, what John is saying, you're very much like this. You're deceitful, you're hypocritical, you're a liar in the way that you live. You look like you know what you're doing. You look like you're righteous. You look like you're repentful. You look like you talk to the Lord, but you're a liar. You're a hypocrite, which means that you're not even a son of God. You're a son of a slithery snake, which is Satan himself. That's, that's a huge confrontation. Ouch, right? And so he goes on and says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, again, this implies that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were coming to John for some kind of spiritual life insurance. They're trying to flee from the wrath to come. They're trying to flee from the judgment that was to come because he was proclaiming the coming of the kingdom of God. They didn't know what this meant other than what was written in the Old Testament. They knew that when the Messiah would come, judgment would come. And so perhaps they were doing this as a ritualistic uh, life insurance policy. They were going and they were just going to do what they knew to do at the moment. But here's the thing, though. Rituals, practices, habits, they do not and cannot protect anyone from God's judgment. So I hope, my desire is that no one thinks that if I do X, Y, Z, then I will be in right standing. I hope that there's nothing in your mind that actually tells you that. Because we are not saved by works. We are not saved by what we do. We are saved entirely by the grace of Jesus Christ. It is what he has done that saves us. It is not what we can do. No rituals, no practice, no habits can save us or protect us from God's judgment. True repentance is the first step. True repentance and conversion does save us from the wrath to come, from God's judgment. In fact, it comforts us. So when the kingdom of God comes, we're comforted by its presence. And so I, looked, I, looked, I read this quote, and I'd like to share it with you. I thought it was really interesting. It says this, Superficial and insincere professions or acts of faith tend only to harden a person against genuine belief, hmm. giving a false sense of security. And this is exactly the condition that the Pharisees were found. They had a false sense of security. They thought that they had it made because they followed the practices, they followed the rituals, they would do whatever it took to be or to appear as though they had it all together. But this can actually lead to a false sense of security. And John was absolutely not about hypocrisy. He would see that none of them would, would perish because of their testimony, the Pharisees and the Sadducees' testimony. He would make sure that people understood the, hip, the hip, hypocrisy, and he would call out the Pharisees and the Sadducees, regardless of how much that stung to them. This man was about truth, and this man was about saving souls. He wanted to make sure that no one was deceived by these practices and that everyone would understand that true repentance is a turnaround of life. It is not rituals and practice. It is an actual heart change. And here's the thing, though. John didn't 
only confront them in their sin. He also gives them a master class of true repentance. So it's just not calling them out, but also teaching them what true repentance actually looks like. So let's look at that master class, and that's verses 8 through 9. Here John's going to lay out what it actually looks like. And so he says in verse 8, bear fruit in keeping up with repentance. That's a big, big comment right there. He's saying bear fruit in keeping up. What he's saying is that repentance shows like Paul actually said to King Agrippa uh, up in Acts chapter 26, 20, when he was talking to them, when he was telling him his message, he says that he was talking to people and telling them that they should repent and turn to God, Acts 26, 20, performing deeds and keeping up with their repentance. Okay, so the comment of deed comes up, keeping up with repentance. So wait, we do have to do something if we're saved? Here's the thing. You don't do something to be saved. You respond out of your salvation. So once you're saved, once you're repentant, once you truly have turned around, deeds follow that. That means that your life will start looking in a way that actually shows that you hated who you were, so you're not going to be like that anymore. And now you're someone new. You're a new creation. That's going to show. The way that you speak is going to be different. The way that you move is going to be different as far as the places that you go, etc. Life is going to look different. It's going to show. And so that's good. That's good to hear. But then there was those among John, right? who were probably wondering, well, what does that actually look like? What is keeping or bearing fruit and keeping repentance actually look like? And so I can just imagine a bunch of people going like, Mr. John, I have a question here. What does that actually look like, right? And so, <laughs> excuse me, teacher, can you give me an example of what that looks like? And so he actually lays out a few examples, but you only read those in the account of Luke. So Luke chapter 3.11 says this. He says, for example... Whoever has two tunics is to share it with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Oh, so we have a message of sharing there, of looking out for one another, of caring for one another, not just being stingy and greedy, which was very common, especially in that culture. But if we step back and consider our lives and our culture, we're there. You know, it's about what we can do, how we can gain, and how we can actually be superior from our neighbor. And so he says, Care for one another. See the value of another person. Take care of one another. And then to the tax collector, he said, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Whoa, wait a minute. What are you saying? I'm saying be honest with business dealings. That's what he's saying. Be a righteous person of integrity. And to the soldiers, he said, do not exhort money from anyone by threats or false accusations and be content with your wages. In other words, if you're a person of power, if you're a person of authority, don't abuse that. Be different. Because if you're truly repentant, the very thing that you're causing someone suffering with or the very thing that's the sin in you will be different. You're going to have to turn it around. It has to look like you actually meant that you were turning around. That's true repentance. In other words, true repentance brings forth good works. If you have truly repentant, it'll show. If I have a language problem, as in I like to drop F-bonds F, F, uh, F and right, left and right, because I'm noticing that the world has very, very much normalized the F word nowadays. You've probably noticed that, yes? Uh, it's so normalized to the point where it's not even a bad word to so many people, including children. And that's what breaks my heart is I see little kids just using that word like it's just a word. If there's true repentance, you're actually going to try to speak differently. You're actually going to uh, do whatever you need to do that shows, I don't want to be that way. 
I want to be this way instead. And so there's got to be a life change. It'll show. James chapter 2, verse 17 says, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Wow, that's huge. If you're not actually living differently, then it's not observable. It's questionable. Do you see that? 1 John 3, 7 says, Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. If you live righteously, if you walk and speak in a righteous way, guess what? You're righteous, you know? You're showing that you're actually living righteously. So good works are not only actions. There can also be words. They can be reactions, the way that you respond to others. Woo, that matters, you know? So true repentance bears good fruit. You know, true repentance is hard because it's natural for us to desire the sinful thing. And so true repentance means that you intentionally hit the brakes and you think and consider the word of the Lord and you'd say, that's who I live for. So true repentance is very conscientious of what's going on. True repentance hates their sin, hates the sin. So I ask you, self-evaluate. Do you hate your sin? Can you pinpoint the things that you know are sinful? And are you actually at the place where you hate it or are you cool with it? So if you're cool with it, that's not true repentance. You may, you, may, you may feel crappy about it in the sense that I don't really like that about myself, but if you're not changing, if you don't really hate it, then there isn't true repentance. If you actually hate it, you're going to try to run away from it. You're going to try to say, I don't want my life to be like this at all. That is true repentance. And here's another thing that uh, John mentions, and this is very important for us to know. I grew up in a Christian home. And for the longest time, if anyone asked me, what are you? Are you Catholic? Are you Christian? Are you Jewish? Whatever it is that you are. I'd say, oh, I'm a Christian. Well, why are you a Christian? Because my mommy and daddy are Christians. You know, we have to be careful about that too. Did you know that salvation is not inherited? It's very personal. If your dad goes to church, God bless your dad. But that doesn't mean that you are automatically also saved. That means that you have to go and process yourself and come to personal repentance as well. Look at verse 9. He says, And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. You see, here's what they believed, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They believed that just being a descendant of Abraham, which meant that they were God's chosen race, made them spiritually secured. They were so proud that they were Jewish. They were so proud that they were part of God's chosen race. That's also to say that being a member of, of the local church, here's the thing though, it's beneficial, but it doesn't guarantee your salvation. It's beneficial to have a mom and dad who go to the to church and who know the word of the Lord because they're able to instruct you in truth and righteousness, but that doesn't mean that it secures your personal salvation. Now that's not, I think that it's certainly not the case. And then John says, God is able from these stones to raise up children. So here's the thing. Being a descendant of Abraham was not an instant access card. He says, you must come to repentance. And so regardless of whether or not you're a Pharisee, a Sadducee, regardless of whether or not you're learned, you're well instructed, you have to come to understand what your sin is and you have to come to repentance is what John is saying. So don't piggyback on your mom and dad's faith because mom and dad were justified by their faith or maybe just mom or maybe just dad. But they were justified by their faith. That means that they came to a point where they experienced true repentance and their life turned around. Now, it gives, again, their children an advantage of knowing God, but we too must be justified by our own faith. 
Okay, mom and dad's repentance is not your own repentance, and your repentance will not be your children's repentance. That's very important for us to know. Let's not be deceived in thinking, okay, we got it. We got it. We're a Christian household. No more problems. That's not how it works, okay? And so what does that matter? If I, if I repent, then what? And if I don't repent, what's the big deal? Well, if you repent, there's, there's comfort there. The kingdom of heaven is going to be the greatest blessing that you'll ever experience. But if you don't repent, look at the consequences. And then let's also look at the comforting words that come from those who are truly repentant. And we'll close with this. The consequence is this. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That means if you're not repentant, you're not changed. If you're not changed, you're going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. So get this picture of a farmer, right? The tree that bears good fruit is kept around. It's good. It's valuable. But the tree that doesn't gets cut down and it gets burnt. That's essentially what uh, John is, is showing to illustrate what happens. The kingdom of God will come and he will deal justly with those who have come to him in repentance and he will deal justly with those who have not and he will um, throw them into the fire is what he's saying. These are the words that he's saying. And so for those who are truly repentant, be comforted. Because God is saving us from that. But for those who are not, consider there is judgment to come and you cannot escape it. And here's the thing, though. That's not for me to tell you where you fall. It's not for your neighbor to tell you where you fall. We can only go by what we can observe. So if you're not showing a change, we probably will tell you, you need to consider repenting, man. You know? But if you are, God knows he's the judge. He will direct you. He will do whatever he can. It is his grace that even is what allows us to be able to come to repentance. But we can ask him, Lord, help me. Help me. Break my heart for what breaks yours. I see this. I'm well informed, but help me. My faith is weak here. We can do that. God is approachable. He invites us to do that. And then John continues and he says this, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. Look at that sense of humility. He says he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. In other words, John's baptism is to help prepare us for the coming of the king, that we would be found cleansed before him. It's a cleansing that only Jesus can grant through true repentance. But then here's the sense of comfort that you need to understand. It is not our own power. It is not our own will and might that keeps us righteous before the Lord, it is Holy Spirit power. It is that. And so when the Lord saves us, he starts changing us. And when he starts changing us, it is by his power that we are able to be right standing before him. You grow more and more accustomed to his presence, more accustomed to his word and his direction to the point where you're literally following the will of the Holy Spirit, who is God himself, who is our helper. John chapter 14, verse 16 through 17, explains the Holy Spirit as this. This is Jesus' words. He says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells in you and will be with you and be in you. This is an a super comforting statement, knowing that, hey, it is the Holy Spirit that will help me get through this time. But it starts with true repentance. And then finally, verse 12 of Matthew chapter 3, he says, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff will be burned with an unquench unquenchable fire. Now, again, this is comforting to me 
Because sometimes I wonder, like, Lord, why am I still so sinful in nature? Lord, why am I still falling short of your glory? Lord, why am I still acting a fool? You know, have you ever had those moments? God knows our hearts. He's the one who comforts us. He's the one who corrects us, rebukes us, who trains us up, who encourages us, who strengthens us. He's the one who's ultimately judge. And that's encouraging to me. That means I don't have to be good enough for you, but I will do whatever I can to bless you. You know, that, that, does it, that, that means that even if you slip up, you don't have to worry about what the pastor says. You know, ultimately, it's between you and the Lord, and he will be just, you know, and he will do what, what he must do. And sometimes he allows us to go through trying times, and then he comes. Sometimes it seems out of nowhere, and he comforts us, and he strengthens us. And he connects us to a beautiful body to be able to be uh, grown. You know, this is the work of the Lord. He does that. He separates the good stuff from the bad stuff. And only he knows what that is. And the good stuff will be with him in eternity forever and enjoying the glory and the wonder of who he is. And the bad stuff is going to deal, be dealt with properly and justly. And you think that's not fair. It is. For we have all have sinned. What's not fair is this. It is absolutely fair that everyone would perish, that everyone would suffer the judgment to come. It is not fair that anyone would be saved. Really, you think about that. Because God is holy and he's amazing. And we think that we are also amazing and that we should and we deserve to be in the glory of God. But the fact of the matter is that no, Jesus has made a way for us to be with him, which is not fair. That is a gift. That is unmerited, undeserved. And so with that, the call is clear. Repent. Have a change of heart. Be different. Walk differently. Does that mean it's instant? Not necessarily. But it means it's, it's happening. And it's evident. And it shows. And so the call is, what is it, guys? What is it that you need to turn from? What is it that we need to turn from? And how can we help each other walk according to righteousness, to the will of the Lord? How can we be fruitful? How can we bear much fruit that the world would see the wonders and the riches and the glory of God through our lives. Bear good fruit. Repent. That is true repentance. It's a genuine change. And so with that, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Father, for not holding back on us. Sometimes we hear these messages and we think, I, I didn't like that one. But Father, this is what we need to hear. And so, Lord, we submit to you and we ask, Father, that you would help us in true repentance, that perhaps there's something that's still holding us down, Father. We surrender that to you. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would help us, Father, get to the point where we realize that separating us from you, Lord, we need you. We love you. We thank you, Father, for the gift of salvation. And we acknowledge that that in itself is not fair. But Lord, what a precious gift, Lord, to be able to be with you, to come to you, to be transformed by you, Lord, to be empowered by your Holy Spirit. God, help us, Lord, be different. Help us come to true repentance. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen and amen.